Sister, thank you so much for just reminding us where our hope lies, that when all kinds of storms of life come, there, there's only one place, one person in whom we can hope to set our anchor, right? And that's in Jesus Christ. And yes, she's right. We are prone to sin and wander and stray. We are prone to worry and fear. And I believe the Lord has a word for us today. And in Matthew 6, verses 33 to 34, Jesus says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And you know, friends, we are living in this season in history, in time, where there are such a great many troubles. Just, I could just list all the stuff, you know, Seth and I were talking earlier about just what has the last three years meant for lots of churches, lots of Lots of people, you know, even if you're not in the church, it's been a hard three years. I could list it, but I think that would, you know, there would be no point. We share in those troubles. And then just this week, in this last eight days, war a new war has broken out in the promised land. It's a time of so many things that could invite us to worry, to fear, and that doesn't even include, what are you going through right now? What are some of the particulars that you're experiencing, the stresses of your life, the, the worries, the, the relationships that are broken and strained? Maybe it's health issues. Maybe it's various types of insecurities that you might have, that I have. There are so many things that could cause us to worry and to fear. And Jesus says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You know, by itself, that verse isn't a comforting verse. I mean, think about it. You, you go to your most trusted friend, confidant, and you say, oh, these things are just weighing so heavy on me. And they say, don't worry. Don't worry, man. Does that comfort us? Does that give us any sense of assurance? And if this verse stood by itself, let's face it, it would seem a bit cold. It would seem dispassionate. You might even feel like you're being dismissed. But thank God... That there is, before this verse, it starts with a therefore. Because there's a reason why we don't have to worry. The command of Jesus, the instruction of Jesus, is tightly woven into his promise. Which is in the previous verse. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that yes, we have many things that worry us. For some of us, we're worrying about how are we going to 
get through another month, let alone another day? How are we going to make ends meet? Lord, we've been praying for our family, our children, our parents. We've been praying for our neighbors and our friends, for our community, our country, the world. There are so many things, so many things that make us fearful, that make us distressed, that, that give us so much anxiety. And Lord, as we hear your word today, perhaps among the most familiar passages for somebody who has heard the Word of God, who has read the Word of God, who has been to church, who has been to Sunday school, who has been to Awana or Vacation Bible School, perhaps one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. But Lord, let it come afresh on us, and Lord, let, us get, let it give us hope, because it's Your Word. And Your Word is true, and Your Word is powerful. Honor Your Word. Speak because your servants are listening. Your children are listening. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So let's continue walking backward. You know, we started with verse 34. Let's go to the end of verse 33, because let's face it, for a lot of us, we're just immediately drawn to, so what are all these things that he's promising us, right? What are all these things? Because I'm interested now. Well, simply, if we're going to be good students of the Bible, you know, you got to read things in context. We can't just take one verse out of context. You know, when I was, when I was uh, growing up, my, my father, you know, one, he, he had one of these moments at church where, I just knew like he must have heard a really convicting message because he'd come home and, and he'd want to initiate something new. And it was one of those days and it was after dinner. He said, today we're going to start something new. And that is we're after supper is finished and we've cleaned the table off. We're all going to stay seated and we're going to read one chapter of the Bible every day. And then here's what I'd like you to do as you're reading Find the one verse or one passage that you feel like is the key verse or key passage, and then let's just share with each other why you believe it's the key passage. And this verse, I believe, is the key passage of the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we find it. Starts in chapter 5. So what are all these things? We can go all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 5 and begin reading through what we also know as the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are. And what do we find there? That, that Jesus promises that our God, our Heavenly Father, has a response for those who have concerns. He promises a response for those who are poor, who mourn, who are gentle, who seek righteousness or justice, who need mercy, who desire to be pure in heart, who desire peace, who are persecuted. He promises that the Father is not deaf and unaware of these things, that he, he promises a response. Then there's this big section which spans most of chapter 5 and 6 concerning our spirituality, 
our relationship to God and to others. The law, personal relationships, spiritual disciplines, piety, generosity, fasting, prayer, wealth. Finally, then he talks about basic necessities. In the passage just preceding this, he talks about our concerns about food and water, clothing, survival, a longer life. Are any of these things concerning to you? Do these touch any of the things that cause you worry, cause you anxiety, maybe cause you fear? And Jesus promises, God's got this. He reminds us that we have a Father in heaven who already knows what we need before we ask. He already knows. God's grace, you know, because of his grace as Americans, you know, very few of us are missing many meals unless we choose to. We're not going thirsty. We're not going around naked for lack of clothing. But there are people in the world who even the basic necessities are not there for them. And God says, I've got this. And Jesus says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you need. Don't be like the Gentiles who are fixated on these things. Consumed with the concerns about these things. In other words, he's saying to us, don't behave like the pagans who hope in a dead God to deliver. Don't don't be like those who have no faith. And, and in our day and age, I think he might say to us, don't be like people who have put their faith in all the wrong places, in all the places that can't actually deliver in dead gods. And we could run the list, right? It's like, oh, a fancier, nicer house. I mean, if, I, if I could just get my, my wife has been bugging me to remodel our kitchen. We've lived in the house for 15 years. I've promised her I will do it. 15 years later, it's still not done. She can't even trust me to get that done, right? But a better kitchen is not the answer to our problems, right? A bigger bank account is not the answer to our problems. A new car is not the answer to our problem. Uh, a degree or another degree is not the answer to our problems. A new leader in this country is not the answer to our problems. They don't deliver. So don't be like those who put their trust, their hope in places and things and people and gods who don't deliver, who can't deliver. You know why? Because dead gods don't deliver. Dead gods don't deliver. Because you're not like those people. You know what kind of people you are? You are people who serve a living God. And he is your heavenly father. He loves you. And not only does he, because he loves you, he wants to take care of us, but he's God. 
He is the king who owns cattle on a thousand hills. Not only does he want to do it, he can do it. And those two are so important that they, they, they line up together because what good would it be to have a God who can do it but cares nothing for us, who doesn't love us, who's not concerned for us? And what good is it if our God is so concerned for us and is impotent and can't do anything about it? But God is mighty to save, and he wants to. So don't worry about your life and what you need. Because look at the God you serve. Don't be distracted by worrying over things which God already knows about and is already taken care of. Don't be so distracted by concerns of things our loving and capable Heavenly Father has got covered. But seek first the kingdom of God, His kingdom and His righteousness. And so what does it mean to seek something first? It speaks of our highest passions, our greatest desires, doesn't it? What are you intentionally pursuing with all your determination, with, with fixation, gross fixation? What are you pursuing? What are you willing to sacrifice everything to have? What have you determined in your own heart whether I live or die, I must have this. I must do this. What deserves whatever it takes? What deserves whatever it takes? And for many, it is their education. It's their careers. It's a certain lifestyle. It's friendships and love and even existential purpose and meaning. But Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so what is the kingdom of God? It, it, it seems like that should be a pretty easy thing to answer because it's talked about so much in the New Testament, right? But, you know, there are thousands, no, I, I, I would dare say millions of books, articles, sermons, Bible studies, written about, spoken about the kingdom of God, trying to nail it down. What is it? And here's just some of the ways that Jesus has talked about the kingdom of God. That it's like yeast that permeates and it penetrates. That it's something you can't simply point at and say, there it is or here it is but that the kingdom of God is in our midst. It's present when we don't recognize it, even when we fail to acknowledge it, and even when we refuse to admit it. When we behold the miracles of God, we see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God grows and it bears fruit with or without us. The kingdom might seem small, but it is unimaginably big. Just as we recognize the changing seasons by the evidence of the weather, of nature, there's evidence for the kingdom of God. So, 
Jesus, John the Baptist, the apostles, they devoted a great amount of time to, to, to speaking, preaching, teaching on the kingdom of God. But what is the kingdom of God? I think there's a whole lot of ways to define it. I'm going to give it to you in like this, like the boiled down nutshell, because this is, you know, I'm a pretty dumb guy myself, and I, I like things to be simple, something I can get my hands around, my, my small brain around. And it's, it's this, we observe the kingdom of God when, when God gets his way. Whenever we see God is getting his way, we are observing the kingdom of God. Whenever we see God's way rule, we are seeing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is visible anytime we observe the king getting his way. So who is getting their way in your life? Who is getting their way in this church? Who is getting their way in Genoa, in Illinois, in the United States, in the world? But it starts with who is getting their way in my life? Whose way do I choose today? My friends, when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Jesus promises all these things. We discussed earlier, kind of tried to create a list. All these will be added to us, will be given to us, will be provided to us. That's his promise. That's the comfort. That's the reason why we don't have to worry. Seek first the kingdom his kingdom, and his righteousness. As we noted earlier, for much of chapter 5, you know, the Sermon on the Mount concerns the law. The rules which make up the measuring stick of righteousness and the rules which govern people's relationships with God and with each other. And so the Jews lived and they breathed this law. They were consumed by the law. They were surrounded by it everywhere. They, they were saturated in his law. From the moment they were born to the day they died, they were surrounded. They could not get away from the law. Their lives were governed by this law. And the law was a heavy, heavy burden, a load for every man, woman, and child. You know, whether you're someone who thinks, you know, man, you know, you beat yourself up thinking, man, I'm so bad at this law-abiding thing. I'm so bad at keeping the rules. And you punch yourself, you know, hopefully not literally, but figuratively, you're beating yourself up over it. And you're defeated. Or maybe you're one of those who thinks, you know what? I'm pretty good at this stuff. I'm pretty good at obeying the law. And there are some of us like that too, right? Jesus has a bomb to drop on us. And in fact, I'm going to say it's three bombs he's going to drop on us. It's, and it's found in the previous chapter, in chapter 5. And, you know, maybe I'll call it a cluster bomb. But the first thing that Jesus drops is he says, do not presume 
I came to abolish the law and the prophets. You see, the thing that caused the most angst, the most worry, the most fear for the Jew, you could say was encapsulated by the law. How do I measure up against the law? And some might think, you know, the simplest way to fix that problem is just get rid of the law. In fact, I personally know people who cannot wait to see the U.S. government collapse, not because they have anything against the U.S. government, but simple things like because the long arm of the law is getting closer to them. Or that they got taxes that are due. And if there's no U.S. government, then there's no one to collect their taxes that are due. So maybe the simplest way to fix this problem of the law is to just get rid of the law. But Jesus says, do not presume I came to abolish the law and the prophets. So it's here to stay. Then he drops a second bomb. And he says, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Don't even mess with this law, this air, this atmosphere that you're all breathing, that's part of the whole Jewish experience. The religious leaders, the teachers of the law, led and they maintained the standard for the law. They knew God was holy. And you know what? They knew in their heart of hearts that the law of God was impossible, impossible to observe. So the religious leaders and the teachers of the law led and maintained the standard. And even though they knew it was impossible, what did they do? You could say they kind of messed with the law. They created all kinds of these hedges around the law, instructions. And how do you not break the law? How do you keep the law? How do you observe it? So the religious leaders interpreted the law. The teachers drew the boundaries around it. The, the judges determined how to apply the law, the priests at the bar for what is obedience and righteousness, what does that look like? And even though we remember these religious leaders for their hypocrisy, I surrender to you, I submit to you that there was probably nobody else who did righteousness better than them. They set the standard. They set the bar. But then Jesus drops a third bomb. What does he say? For I say to you, in verse 20 of chapter 5, you can read it for yourself. For I say to you that unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, what now? What now? If the most religious people I know the most pious, holy people I know, if they don't measure up, if I got to be more holy than them in order to have the kingdom of heaven, what hope is there for me? If I'm not more holy and more righteous than Pastor Eric, what hope is there for me? And one of the most religious Jews in the New Testament, one of the most not just religious, but I would say righteous Jews in the New Testament, is this Pharisee named Saul. You know, later he had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his name was changed to Paul. But this is how he describes. Now, remember, the most 
I would argue, the most righteous man walking the face of the earth. And this is what he says about his former self. And think about it. Like if, you t- if you're giving your testimony and you're talking about like, man, this is who I was before Jesus. And now this is who I am. I mean, think about the stuff that you would list. Like I would say like, man, I was a womanizer. I treated people like they were things or steps to be walked on. So not only immoral, I was a drunkard. You know, I could just go on. List the list would be long, but here's Paul's list. But what um, in Philippians chapter three verse four? If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, human ability to be righteous. Okay, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. That's who he was before Jesus. But then what else does he say? But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. There's a lot of things I could list in my past, and I'll say that's absolutely garbage, and no one in the room would disagree. The stuff that Paul lists, every Jew would say, what are you talking about? You live the exemplary life. That's the life. You're my hero. I want to be you, Paul. What are you talking about? What do you mean it's garbage? That's what I've dedicated my whole life to. And now you're saying it's for nothing. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, he says. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Wow. What a testimony. See, what is he saying? Don't seek the righteousness of men, even the holiest and godliest of men. That's not the righteous standard. Don't seek the righteousness, the standard you've set for yourself. Like, I'm better than yesterday. That's good enough. Don't settle for garbage. Seek his standard, God's standard of righteousness, because that's the only righteousness that is righteousness. That's the only righteousness that counts. Paul had a choice. Do I trust my eternity and what I've been able to do, and the righteousness that I've been able to achieve, why do I trust the one who has fulfilled the law? The one who has completed it. Who am I going to trust? And Paul was no fool. He knew himself, I am not going to trust myself. Am I crazy? No, I'm going to trust Jesus. I put my faith in Christ for my eternal life and salvation, for the forgiveness of my sins, for the new 
life that he promises. I'm going to put my trust in the one who was crucified for me. Where was Paul's righteousness? What did he seek first? Jesus. So my friends, when we hear, seek first the kingdom of God or seek his kingdom and his righteousness, what are we seeking? We're seeking that God gets his way. And you know what's at the very top of God getting his way in your life? Is that you would choose Jesus. That you would choose Jesus. That you would put your faith in him and say all the other stuff that doesn't even compare. It's garbage. My friends, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. His standard of righteousness. That is Jesus. And then we get to verse 34. Therefore, because when we put our sights, our first priorities, our, all of our you know, highest order of desire onto his kingdom, his righteousness, then he promises, I got the rest of this. It's all taken care of. Don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You know, I've often, you know, I was just confessing to my couple of brothers here before the service that I'm not one of those guys who like just loves preaching and just I cannot wait to get on the pulpit and, and start going at it. And, and I think some of it is that I feel like, man, the thing I preached last week, I'm still working on that. And as well as the stuff that I've been working on for like years, I'm not sure if I'm ready for a new teaching. And this is one of those that, like I said, is a familiar passage. But it's like, if we get this right, it's one of those that's like, all the other stuff, we're good. Right? If we can put his righteousness first, his kingdom first, man, all the other stuff just falls into place. Thank you, sister, for sharing about the worries and the angst that you have yourself. And man, none of us are in here thinking like, I don't know what you're talking about because I don't experience any of that stuff. We do. It's all taken care of there at the cross of Jesus, at the feet of Jesus. Lord, have your way with me. Have your way in the world around me. And I seek your righteousness. I want you. Let's put our confidence in the promise of God's word, my friends. Let's do it now. Let's not wait. Let's do it now. Let's allow Jesus to reset our perspective on this day and then every day after. Let's soak in God's promise, but also his fulfilled promise that even before we ask, God knows, our Heavenly Father knows what we need. He's already working on it. His promise is true. He's going to take care of it so that we don't have to worry. Let's just soak that in. Let's bask in the wonder of that. Let's bow our heads. 
And as we pray, let me allow, please allow me to, to lead us in our time of response. So let me ask you, would you, would you in your own words tell the Father that you are forsaking your way and all other ways? That you're forsaking your righteousness and all other standards of righteousness and you are choosing today his way and his righteousness, his son Jesus. Yes, Father, I confess that so many times, so many days, I am choosing my own way. I am choosing my way over your way. And I am choosing me over Jesus. And Lord, would you forgive me? But today, I, I choose your way. I choose your Son. Lord, let me experience the, the promises fulfilled as I pursue your kingdom and your righteousness. And that with your eyes still closed, would you ask the Father to use you in helping others to also choose his way and his righteousness? To ask the Father to use you to, to help others choose his way and his righteousness. I have, an, I have a feeling that immediately you're, you've got somebody that you're thinking about. Would you pray for that person right now? God, would you give me a way in? Would you give me the opportunity? To help my daughter, to help my neighbors, to help my best friend to choose your way and your righteousness, to choose Jesus. Would you give me the end? Lord, I trust you that you're going to give me the words that I need to speak to do the things that I need to do. Make me sensitive. Make me like a sheep that recognizes the shepherd's voice to do only what you tell me to do. Say only what you tell me to say. And thank you, Lord, that you're already working on the people I love around me. And you are going to have your way. And finally, yes, we do live in a very troubled nation and world. And some of you would just say, I live in a very troubled house. In a troubled neighborhood, in a troubled town, in a troubled state. Let's pray. You know, we can so easily do what so many others do, which is just complain. But let's instead pray. And if it's a complaint in prayer to God, then let it be. But let's ask God, would you have your way 
And would you establish your standard of righteousness in my world, in my country, in my house? Yes, God. Surrendering it all to you. And confessing there are things I cannot do. I just can't do it. It's only in the power of God. Lord, have your way. Have your way in me. Have your way in the people around me. Have your way in this world. And glorify your son, Jesus. Father, as we have heard your word today, and perhaps it's a familiar word, but Lord, thank you that your word is timeless and timely, even if we've heard it before. And that God, you have invited us to take a step towards you, to lay down, to lay down our ways. And all, all the pretenders of righteousness and to choose you and your son. And that's what we do today. And Father, would you use us to, to be an instrument for bringing um, the kingdom of God and his righteousness to the lives of others? Let us, give us the opportunity to speak boldly, but respectfully to speak with kindness and compassion to speak with courage into the lives of people around us and the world around us and Lord we know that your promise is true that you will indeed deliver you will take care of it all and whether that happens today or tomorrow or it happens ultimately with the return of Christ to establish his kingdom forever. Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that we are not fools for trusting you. We're not going to be ashamed for believing you. God, thank you that you're also a father who has heard all of our requests today, even though you already knew what we needed. Perhaps you needed us to say it so that we would know that we needed it. Thank you, God. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for his cross. Thank you that you did not spare your own son in order to have us as your own. Thank you for claiming us as your sons and your daughters and giving us the right to call ourselves children of God. We love you because you have loved us well with an everlasting love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.